So uh, many years ago, while I was a seminary student still, so uh, still in training and getting my degree to, be, to become a pastor, our, our church was in between pastors at the time, and so I was asked by uh, church leaders to do a lot of the preaching for our English-speaking congregation here at the Crossing. And so I was not very good, so I'd have to pour tons and tons of hours into the preparation, into the praying and the planning uh, for sermons. And, and it, it was a lot of work, especially as I was working full-time um, outside of church. And so there was one Sunday. I get up here to the pulpit, open up my Bible like I always do, and to my horror, I realized I had forgotten to print a script for my sermon. And if you don't understand, this is like the nightmare scenario for me as a pastor. That's why if you uh, know anything about me, I have so many backups now. I come and tape my sermon onto the podium. I have it also digitally. I make sure that I email it, put it in my Google Drive. It's on my iPad just in case. But that was my nightmare scenario. And so you can imagine me, I was a fairly young person at the time, and I was in a panic. And so I was standing up here, and I didn't know what to do, so I started praying. You know, like you're praying for the church and, of course, praying for people to hearts to be open to the Word of God. But inside, I, all I could think about was like, okay, let's try to remember. What are the main points that I had written down before? Uh, is there any good jokes that I could tell to stall for time? And so I was painfully stubbed, stumbling through whatever I could remember of the sermon uh, that morning. Now, praise the Lord for those of you who are old-timers, very gracious, very kind church. Nobody said a word, positively or negatively. But I want to say to you that it did not go well. And that is why you will not find it on our church website. <laughs> but, and, and what I'm thinking about this morning is, do you know that you can do a lot of preparation and still not be ready? And that is true whenever that moment in life comes, when we need to face the music, when we need to be moving into action as God calls us. We've been learning about how God is calling all of us to repair, to redeem areas of our lives, relationships, our work, in our world. And the question is, are you actually ready? And so I want you to turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Nehemiah chapter 2. We are in a series called Restore, how we experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what's broken. And that when God is at work in this process, it's not simply replacing what's been broken, but for God to build something new, something better. And so we learned that 150 years before uh, Nehemiah's time, that God's city and citizens remain in ruins. And so Nehemiah's heart breaks for suffering, and suffering people in need of a savior. And so what he does is he returns to God and his promises and leans on those for restoration for the people of God. And so likewise, our calling and our mission as the church of Jesus, is to bring glory to him and his restoration to others. So our hearts break and we pray and participate in God's restoration for people, for families, for cities. And so last week we learned in that process that we need to get involved in taking risks for the Lord and the word of God through Nehemiah teaches us, well, how do we navigate those risks? We talked about when to wait on God, when to move for God, and that in either of those seasons to faithfully both pray and plan in the process. Now, today what we're seeing is that Nehemiah finally goes to Jerusalem, and so he's moving from aspiration to implementation. And what I want you to get, the big idea of this morning's passage is that when God calls us to act, our faithfulness is demonstrated by our readiness. 
You see, faith isn't just what you believe in your head. It's how you act upon that belief. It's saying, yes, Lord, I do trust you. I do trust your word so much that I faithfully and actively prepare for the things that you are calling me to do. Now, there should be a little bit of cognitive dissonance in your head because last week we talked about risk and preparation sounds a lot like playing it safe. Aren't we called to take great risks for God? And yes, that's what we learned last week, but what we're learning from Nehemiah is that godly risk isn't expressed in recklessness, but in readiness. And so the task at hand that Nehemiah faces is immense. And so as he moves from vision to action, how does he faithfully ready himself for that? So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Then I, Nehemiah, came to the governors of the province beyond the river, that's a translation of the trans-Euphrates region, and gave them the king's letters that we saw last week. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So in verse 9, Nehemiah, he doesn't arrive quietly on the scene. I want you to imagine all the dust and all the noise that's being kicked up by this large convoy of horses and wagons that are carrying tons of timber that, that Nehemiah had requisitioned from the king for this rebuilding project of the walls and the gates of the entire city of Jerusalem. This is something that you could see coming for miles. It attracts a lot of attention. So Nehemiah is not sneaking into the land in the, in the dark of the night. And instead, he immediately gathers all of the governors of the trans-Euphrates region. These are people who are appointed in charge of different sections of this region by the, by the Medo-Persian emperor. And so this includes Judah, Samaria, and all the surrounding nations around it. And so he comes and he prevents those, presents those official letters of safe passage that he re requested from the king. Because he wants to show that he has both the king's approval and the king's authority, and it's backed up by the king's army because he comes with a full regiment of soldiers that are here to protect the caravan and its transport so that bandits or robbers or saboteurs can't get a hold of the king's stuff. And so in verse 10, what happens is that we meet two internet influencers. That's what they seem like to me. Sambalat the Horonite, and who is not a Jewish person, he is the governor of Samaria. We know this both in the Bible as well as through um, historical archaeological evidence. And so Samaria is uh, north of Judah, and this was once the northern kingdom of Israel. But you remember now, it's been overthrown and overrun with people who have assimilated and intermarried with other cultures and other religions and idol worship. So they are not Jewish people anymore. And then Tobiah uh, the Ammonite, he is an official, an Ammonite official. And for those of you who don't know what an Ammonite is, those were the historical enemies of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 10. So you can imagine these two guys. They're less than thrilled that someone has come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel whom they've been historically enemies with, whom they're happy to have, have dealt with and, and not have any trouble from over these many years. But even if these two men who have some official clout uh, were to use that to raise up a stink, Nehemiah came already with the king's authority and the king's army. He's ready for political opposition, for bandits, for internet trolls. And I want you to see that he's not trying to start any trouble, but he is prepared for it. Why? Because when God calls us to act, we need to be already ready 
for resistance. Nehemiah is not caught by surprise. He is expecting it to come. Because you may remember in John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus tells us, Remember the word I said to you, to his disciples, that a servant is not greater than his master, that if they persecute me, Jesus, then they will also persecute you. In other words, when we follow Jesus, when we are following his word and his will, even though you're doing what's good and godly, even if it's to the benefit of other people, like Nehemiah, we anticipate opposition will come from the evil one and his influence on people who want to oppose what you're doing. So we need to anticipate it and be ready for it when it comes. And so like Nehemiah, there's times that we're ready for it with the right set of keys to disarm his detractors, right? He came with various things so that they would know that he has the right to be here. And yet, there are also times, even when you have the proper clearance codes, there's times that you may have to simply endure antagonism with humility. And I know that doesn't sound very fun because a lot of times we're praying, God, uh, there's these people who are opposing your good work or opposing me and, and slandering my character or doing things against me. And we pray and we pray and praise the Lord. Uh, God is our defender. And there are times when it seems like God is not answering, not because he's not. Sometimes he's, remember we talked about, sometimes we are praying in God's will and we need to wait on God's timing. But sometimes God allows us to suffer anyways. And what 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us is that consider it a great honor because you are never more like Jesus than when you experience persecution for the sake of Jesus. But either way, we're not surprised. We're ready, just like Nehemiah. And then in verse 11, he, he continues, So I, Nehemiah, went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by the night, by the valley gate, to the dragon's spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool that's on the east side of Jerusalem, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Oh, I know your heart is deeply moved by that passage. Let's figure out what's happening here. So in verse 11, what Nehemiah does not do on day one when he shows up is to blindly charge into action. He doesn't start telling everyone in the city what they need to do. Instead, he took three days off to rest and recover from this long journey that he had. Then he goes out and gets a lay of the land in Jerusalem to familiarize himself with the people, the place that he's never visited before. Remember, he is a Jewish person by culture and ethnicity, but he was born in, uh, enslaved in the Medo-Persian Empire because Jerusalem and Judah have been uh, conquered for 150 years at this point, and he was one of the exiles. And so he familiarizes himself with the people in the place there before he jumps into action. And we know that that's a guide. So for myself, I remember the first month that Pastor Brett and I, a friend pastor of our church, for those of you who know him, uh, we went door to door in this neighborhood, throughout this neighborhood. We went from one block to another uh, to, to want to share the good news about Jesus with our neighbors. But in that first month that we, we went out, we didn't go around telling people what we think their needs are. Instead, we spent a lot of time getting to know our neighbors and to know their needs, discovering how can we pray for you? How can we serve you? Instead of us making uninformed assumptions about what people want and what people need. 
And so we see Nehemiah doing something similar here. In verse 12, on the third evening, he slips out in the middle of the night. He brings a few tour guides. He doesn't tell them what he's doing, but he goes out to personally uh, examine the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And it says in the passage in verse 12 that he doesn't put his cards out on the table yet about this vision that God has put on his heart to rebuild. Why? Because he knew that there was opposition, but he doesn't yet know who is friend or foe in the city. And so until then, he's going to discern uh, the scope of what is God calling him to do in Jerusalem. So in verses 13 through 15, there's a lot of names, probably unfamiliar to you, but what I want you to get from it is that he is thorough. He covers the perimeter walls of Jerusalem from one side of the city to the other. He starts from the west side. That's those first couple places uh, we read about. He swings down south, and then he comes over to the east side. And here's where it gets significant. So on the east side of Jerusalem is the Kidron Valley. And the walls that used to be built there, it's a steep drop. It's like a steep, almost like mountainside drop. And what they had to do in order to build those walls, it's super defensible against enemies. But because of that steep drop, they had to build terraces to make it manageable. So they built terraces, and they would build walls on top of those terraces. So you have multiple layers of walls. And on top of those walls, they would build buildings. And so it's pretty formidable. If you were coming from uh, the east side to attack Jerusalem, it is a formidable fortress from that side. But what happened 150 years ago was when Babylon finally breached the walls of Jerusalem, when they burned and destroyed the city, this is where we see in verses uh, 13 through 15, Nehemiah discovers the greatest damage. Because what happened was the walls, the terraces, the buildings on top of those, once they were burned and destroyed, they all crumbled into the valley. So much so that there's so much rubble that even Nehemiah, Riding a single animal, there's nowhere for him to pass, and he has to turn back. That's what's happening in this passage. So why did he spend all this time doing this? Because the second part of what we need to learn this morning is when God calls us to act, that we need to be ready with research. And I know that sounds really boring, but Nehemiah, he understands he needs to survey this situation for himself. And the key here is that he does a very honest assessment. Wow, things are way worse than I thought. But it's better for me to know because I don't want to fool myself with a fantasy. I need to deal with the reality. Now, right now, you should be asking, well, that sounds very practical, but where's the gospel in this? So I want to point you to Luke chapter 14. Jesus tells those who want to become his disciples, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you need to count the cost. And as an example, if you're building a tower without counting the cost, you run out of resources, and then you're unable to finish because you didn't fully understand the situation or your own limitation. And that he talks about this because the same actually applies to our faith, that in Christ, the gift of eternal life is free, but the cost to follow him is everything. That we are willing to surrender all that we have, all that we are to Jesus, to trust and obey him, in whatever he calls us into in our lives. And that includes the time and the effort to faithfully investigate a situation when God calls us to action. And so like Nehemiah, the issue here is faithfulness. As I trust and follow Jesus, as he moves my heart to serve people, to be his agent of healing and restoration in people's lives, have I counted the cost? Because you can start a lot of new things and end up not finishing them because you didn't count the cost. 
And so when we're called to start a new business or maybe a new relationship or a new ministry to serve our neighbors and love our neighbors, to bring restoration, have you faithfully done the work of understanding the context, the constraints, and the cost of doing so? You see, many are excited to follow Jesus in the vision, but few faith are faithful to follow through in the execution. And so I want you to take an honest assessment. Have you honestly assessed the situation God's calling you to pour out his love and his light into? Do you know where the walls are collapsed? At your school, at your workplace, in your community, in your church, in your marriage. Because all of us have blind spots, like Nehemiah, you may need a tour guide, a godly counselor, perhaps, to point out where you're at an impasse, where the damage is, but you don't see it clearly for yourself. Be faithful by doing the research. Verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Verse 16. Nehemiah did not tell anyone where he was going or what he was doing, including the people that he would need to recruit to do, do the work. Now, he finally gathers all the Jewish people in Jerusalem, in, this, in the city. Uh, he gathers them for this town hall meeting so that he can cast vision for them about what God is calling them to do together. You see, when God calls us to act, we need to be ready to also raise up others by casting vision, by inviting people to join with us. Now, you hear that uh, tossed out a lot, even in our church. And so what I want you to understand vision is. Vision isn't just, here's my five-year plan, because uh, that's just a milestone, or those are just goals. A vision is painting a picture of the future, what the future could be, especially in Christ. It's a journey where uh, we understand where we are going, why we are going, and how we get there. And so when people catch a compelling vision for God and his kingdom and his people, They're willing to take great risks and make great sacrifices for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so let's break down what that might look like. In verse 17, a compelling vision starts with a holy discontent and heartbreak about the status quo. So the starting place is we need to move from where we're broken, that there's this brokenness here, the status quo is not okay, something is wrong, and we need to move from that. That's that movement in the journey. Brothers, We're in trouble. Look around you. The city is in ruins. Without walls, without gates, we're defenseless against bandits and bad neighbors. We can't live like this. We can't worship like this. So the start of the vision is with giving people a heartbreak about the brokenness and why we need to move out from that brokenness. Afterwards, he shows them not only the need to move, but he paints a picture of, well, where do we need to go? Let us build the walls of Jerusalem. 
Now, I want you to notice here, when he is telling them these things, he doesn't shame them or blame them for the current state of Jerusalem, because these people have been living here for a long time. Instead, he says, we are in trouble. Let us rebuild together. So vision isn't just telling others what they need to do or what they failed to do, because that's just criticism. Or the great things that I'm going to do, because that's just arrogance. Godly vision invites and involves others into the will and work of God together to see ourselves as a body of Christ that works together. And then the last piece that Nehemiah gives is at the end, he's going to give them the compelling why of the vision. That we may no longer suffer derision. Now what that means is we would look at that and like, oh, all he, that Nehemiah is trying to appeal to like, aren't you ashamed of yourself? And like, kind of like a Middle Eastern or, or Asian, Amer- Asian <laughs> old, old school perspective, kind of blame, using shame and guilt to, to get people moving. That's not what he's doing. We're going to see that it's not about my own reputation, but about God's. You see, in Nehemiah, Jerusalem is not just about the walls. It's not just a capital city. Jerusalem is the center of life and worship for the people of God. It is the testimony to the nations about the work and the goodness of God. And so how the condition of the city and people of God are reflects on the name and the glory of God, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 9. So what's at stake here is the glory of God. So in verse 18, we see Nehemiah start to give them a taste of that. He starts to give glory to God. He recounts from verse 8 how the good hand of God was upon him even moving the heart and the hands of the king to support this endeavor because as mighty and as much provision as the king of the Medo-Persian Empire has and is, God is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is faithful and powerful and glorious. And so how do the people respond to that calling? Let us rise up and build. And they got ready for the work. So here's my question for you. How do you inspire people to sacrifice their time and their energy and their money, their blood, their sweat and tears to rebuild walls under the scorching Palestinian desert sun when every attempt has failed because of enemies or poverty for the past 150 years that the walls have been torn down? If your vision is small, if your vision for life is living for yourself, fulfilling your own needs and greeds, you will find that it's not enough meaning, it, there's not enough motive, especially when the cost gets too high. Now, if your vision is medium-sized, perhaps you feel a conviction for your community or for a lofty cause, you'll sacrifice more until you run out of steam or run out of resources or run out of goodwill from people helping you. But... If you have a God-sized vision for your life, people are willing to lay down their lives when eternity and the glory of God are at work and at stake. And so Nehemiah demonstrates for them, here is the glory of God at work already, and here is the glory of God at stake for the people. And the problem with us is we often have a Lone Ranger mentality of being independent. I don't want to bother others. I do want to be in control when the reality is we're robbing others of the opportunity to experience God by not involving them, and we're never really in control, and we find that out when things spin out of our control. 
So we have this tendency to want to be independent, but the God of the Bible calls us to be interdependent, a body of Christ leaning on each other, to encourage one another, to challenge each other, to lean on one another through those difficult times, to do the work together, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. So when God calls you to act, are you inviting and involving other people? Well, I don't know how. How do you do that? You show people what's broken, why we need to move out of this broken status quo. You show them where God is calling us to go. You call, God is calling us out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And then you show them what's at stake for the glory of God and the good of other people. And then you pray that they catch that vision. And watch if people won't stand up and join you in the great work of God in our lives and in our world. Now, involving others and casting vision, stuff like that, that all makes sense if, for ministry, but how does that apply to my family when God is calling me to act in a smaller scale way? There was a husband and wife who had been hiding their marriage problems for quite some time. They had been coming to church, and they're very good at putting on the right face, the right religious face, saying the right things. But the truth was they were so worn out by constantly having to face, they were always attacking each other and angry at each other, and so every conversation was a battle. And so unfortunately, talk about divorce had started to creep into their, into their home. And so in desperation, the husband got honest with his men's group. Brothers, my marriage is falling apart. I want to save it. I want people to be able to see Jesus in it. I don't know how. You see what he did there just now? He cast vision, didn't he? He says, here's what's broken. Here's where I want to go. Here's where we need to go. And here's why I need Jesus to get us there. And so as he cast his vision, this, his brothers in Christ, these three other men encircled his life. He said, you know what? Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to be in your life every, every week. We're going to have a conference call. This long before the you know, internet things like Zoom or, or uh, Google Meet. Uh, so they had a conference call every Tuesday and Thursday. Every th Tuesday and Thursday before work, they would call each other and pray together for this man, for his marriage. Brother, we're also going to hold you accountable. You're stuck in a cycle where all you can see in your marriage for both you and your wife is rage. And so we want you to get a glimpse of the flip side, the goodness of God and his blessing. And so every day, we want you to say and do one kind thing for your wife, regardless of what she says or does. Just one kind thing. And this is how little, low the bar was at, at this point in their marriage. And the brother's kind of like, well, you know, I'm not the only one at fault. To change the equation in your marriage, you just have to change one side of the equation. So let's start with yours. Five years later, they're still working on their marriage, but that was the turning point. Both of them point to that as the season when how they treat each other, how they think about each other began to change. Jesus began to transform it. Because the God of heaven can redeem and can repair, and he'll often use his family as the vehicle if we're willing to humble ourselves and invite and involve other people into the process. Who do you need to invite and involve in what God is calling your heart to do? Verse 19. 
But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and they were joined by Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Verse 19, Nehemiah is holding this town hall for Jewish people, but Sanballat, Tobiah, and they're joined by their buddy Geshem. They show up. They're not Jewish people. And now their private contempt erupts into public criticism. What do you think you're doing? Are you rebelling against King Artaxerxes? And remember, we talked about this last week. This is a very dangerous accusation. You see, this is what the neighboring nations accused Judah of in the past, in Ezra chapter 4, 13 years prior. And it led to King Artaxerxes, same king, same request, to decree, cease the construction immediately and indefinitely. So says the king. And so the enemies of Judah successfully shut down this rebuilding project many years ago. Why are they bothering to troll God's people? You see, as long as the walls and the gates of Jerusalem are broken, then the people of, of, of Jerusalem are defenseless. That means that they're easy to intimidate and subjugate to the will of their neighbors. It's like if you were the only house on your street without a fence, and you started to rebuild it, and then your antagonistic neighbor accuses you at the homeowners association meeting, well, they can't build a fence. They're just being unneighborly, or they're trying to hide their immorality, or they're not following all of our HOA rules. They're just bringing down the property value. And what we see here in this church town hall for Nehemiah is that not everyone in the gathering of God's people is really invested in God's glory. And that there are times that the loudest voices are the ones from people who don't regularly worship and fellowship and serve and give, who have their own priorities and preferences, but not God's. And so these three stooges, they reveal their cars. They're standing in opposition to the work of God in Jerusalem. Now, there's times when it's appropriate to simply ignore trolls, people who are trolling you. But when someone publicly disparages God's vision and publicly discourages God's people, we cannot let that damage go unchecked. We must respond to that. And so Nehemiah knows that when God calls us to act, we need to be ready to respond to the critics. You see in verse 20, he doesn't appeal to the king's authority. He doesn't appeal to the people's prosperity. He doesn't appeal to national pride as the reason we should build about this stuff. Instead, he thunders about the God of heaven, his will, his work, his authority, his glory. Nehemiah is saying, it's not about me. It's not even about us, the Jewish people in Jerusalem. We're just the ones who serve him. But he says to these three, but you don't. You don't love God. You don't serve God. You are not children of God. So you have no inheritance or vote in what he's doing here. And so what we find is that critics will constantly crawl out of the woodwork whenever there's a movement of God and his vision and his restoration. And there's times that we are to respond by humbling ourselves and listen. I want you to hear this, this part, because a lot of times we think like, yeah, Nehemiah, <laughs> hurl that fire. But there are times when we are called to humble ourselves and listen, to recognize that all of us were foolish and fallen at times. We have blind spots. And so one of the things we teach leaders here at this church is to receive feedback as a gift, to allow your critics to sometimes become your coaches. 
to discover if there's any truth or correction from Jesus through that person, to humble ourselves and thank that person for that helpful, constructive feedback, and maybe to repent and change when necessary. But other times, critics like these men in this passage are only there to sow confusion and conflict and even contradiction. So I think about during this whole building process, it's easy for critics to come and say, why, do, why are we so cheap with new buildings? Like in some areas. And then contradictorily, some people complain, why are you spending so much on this building? Sometimes people will come up to you if you are doing things for the Lord or obeying God's calling and prompting in your life. Why are you sacrificing your family time for this ministry? That's just the season maybe that God has called you to temporarily. Or why are you sacrificing your ministry time for your family? You're being so selfish. And so we get derailed because we don't have discernment. And we mistake busyness, trying to please everybody, uh, we, do, we mistake busyness for fruitfulness, the fruitfulness of obedience. And so what needs to happen is we need to pursue our calling, not our potential. And you need to be able to know the difference. That's why you really need to spend time alone with God and his word so that you can be close to Jesus, so that you can hear from Jesus. Because when you're clear on your calling, then you'll know how to respond to the critics. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Or we can't go that way. This is what Jesus says. This is what his word says. This is how I am called. So I've been praying for Jesus to give you a holy discontent and a heartbreak about some area of your life, of ministry, of your family, of the community that we live in, that it's in need of restoration. And I really believe as we move from vision to action, you need to figure out are you ready? Because our faithfulness to Jesus is demonstrated in our readiness for Jesus. And so I want to invite you to spend a few moments, even as the music begins to play, just to simply ask the Lord to ready you, to ready you for the resistance that will come against any of the good work God wants to do in your life or in other people's lives. To take an honest assessment about where you are, about the situation, and about your limitations. Ask God to give you clear clarity about who to invite and involve in this great endeavor that God is putting into your heart. And for God to give you wisdom and clarity about how to respond to the critics. May Jesus give you an increasing clarity of your calling. May you be ready to enter a new season of restoration for yourself and for others in this broken world. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the beauty of your word that even in passages that sound just like historical records or, or technical details, that there is so much truth and power and life for us. And so we humbly ask in this moment, would you help us? We don't have to remember every single detail about this message, but would your Holy Spirit grab a hold of one piece that we need to look at this morning so that we might be ready, that we might be faithful to you? We love you. We praise you in the name of Jesus.